Do you want to stay more focused on the right goals in your life or even just figure out what the right goals are for you? Do you want clarity? Do you want better work-life balance? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to Success Through Failure. Welcome to the Success Through Failure podcast, the show that reveals failure as your path to success. You'll listen to intriguing interviews with some of the most successful people on the planet and learn how their failures became a launchpad for success and how yours can too. Here's your host, former Division I All-American wrestler, former Division I head coach, speaker, and personal coach, Jim Harshaw. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. Today, I bring you Clint Wattenberg. I've had tons of amazing guests on this show, well over 100 now, billionaires, astronauts, professional athletes, world-renowned entrepreneurs, and they've shared their insider secrets for success. They've offered everything from top book recommendations to success hacks to action items that you can use today to see results immediately. If you're like me, you love this kind of stuff. And if you're like me, you want to get the cliff notes, or I guess these days they call them the spark notes. Well, you can get access to the action plans from your favorite guests, like Spartan Race founder Joe DeSena from episode 27, or Navy SEAL Mark Devine from episode 45, or maybe fitness guru Tony Horton from episode 85, plus other amazing tips and tactics to help you get clear on how to get from where you're at to where you want to be. I put all this in one place because you're busy and you want to get what you need quickly so you can move on with your day. Here's what I want you to do. Go to jimharshawjr.com slash action to get instant access to everything I just talked about. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action. And if you're listening to this on iTunes, there are three dots on your screen. Just touch the three dots, select view full description. There you'll see the link to download all the incredible resources and action plans that I just mentioned. Now for today's guest. Clint is currently the director of nutrition at the UFC Performance Institute in Las Vegas. Clint was a two-time All-American wrestler at Cornell University and a member of the U.S. national team. He's a registered dietitian and earned his master's degree in exercise physiology. He now works with some of the top MMA athletes in the world. Clint, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jim. I obviously know your background. You and I have known each other for a lot of years, but can you share with the listener just a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up and kind of a 30,000-foot view of how you got from there to where you're at now? All right. So I'll, I'll make it as quick as I can. I grew up in Northern California, Chico, actually, which has uh, been devastated recently by some forest fires. But I uh, grew up in Chico. I uh, was a lifelong wrestler. It was, uh, you know, dabbled in some sports as a, as a young kid. Wrestling was the one that uh, stuck with me uh, from age five. Kind of became a full-time, you know, wrestler uh, around 11 or 12. Also ran cross-country uh, competitively through high school. You know, quite honestly, they're very similar sports in the psychology of them. You just go and suffer as much as you can. Yeah. Um, went to Cornell University, studied nutritional sciences, um, had some uh, some successes and failures, and I know we'll talk about some of those uh, in a little bit at Cornell, but I was able to uh, to achieve All-American status a couple times. Uh, continued my career, trained uh, through the 08 Olympic trials. Um, again, never quite reached my goals there, but uh, still got some great experiences. was on the national team for a couple of years. 
I went back, got my credentials and certifications to be a registered dietitian, um, got my foot in the door at Cornell University. My lifelong dream at that point was to build a sports nutrition program. Um, did that slow and steady. And as I did that, I, I got a lot of experience in an area of dietetics that I had little to no experience with, which was eating disorder counseling. Um, got uh, a lot of experience and expertise in that. And um, really, that's, that shaped a lot of my career up, up until this point, is the, the understanding of physiology, of psychology around food, and, um, and how that applies to performance. So I was able to develop that performance nutrition program at Cornell University, um, at which time the UFC, of course, the year that I got full-time at Cornell, the UFC opens a performance institute, and I couldn't say no. So I've been out here for about a year and a half. I'm working with the, the best high-performance team in all of sports. Um, and, uh, and, and the greatest athletes in the world. So couldn't be more thrilled with where I am and obviously, uh, a lot of steps to get here. Wow. Awesome. Yeah, man, it's uh, I want to dive into a little bit about what it's like to work out there, but first, did you say the psychology around food? Absolutely. Uh, food is, is, you know, we think about it in terms of its macro and micronutrients very often, but there's a, a lot of variables that go into making food choices, food environment, um, access to food, and, and obviously the psychology of food and how it plays into, uh, you know, decision-making and, and uh, our overall wellness. Tell me about that more. I mean, is it the psychology of, of the decisions that somebody makes around what they eat? Um, I mean, tell, tell me more about that. So th- there's a number of different ways to, to look at it. Well, I look at it from just, you know, kind of a personal wellness front um, and, and, you know, addressing what I consider to be the, the diet culture that we live in. <clears throat> All of the messages that, that we're receiving uh, from the media, from marketing, uh, from a lot of different sources are, are really trying to convince us that we're not good enough with what we're, who we are, what we are, what we have, and we need to buy their products or that we need to be thinner because X, Y, or Z. Yeah. And that's whether so it's like diet or, or a car, right? You're, you're not good enough with what you have. You got to buy our stuff, our product, our food, our car, whatever. Yeah. yeah. It's marketing. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And so digging through that and, and figuring out what, what are the, you know, the things that are, are making uh, people select, you know, food and, and choose certain diets is, is really at the crux of, of what I'm trying to do in terms of the wellness side is, is how to uh, support individuals and athletes to make food decisions that support their long-term goals. Uh, a lot of the psychology, whether it's, um, you know, for, for wellness or for performance is keeping in mind that this is a long-term, this is a long-term challenge. There's no quick fix to nutrition. And that's one reason why it's so hard is, you know, marketing and, and sales is all about, pitching that quick fix. And so, um, that's what's sexy and that's what people, uh, buy into quite often. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, good, solid performance nutrition, regardless of what you're trying to perform to for, uh, requires more skill and more, uh, habituation than it does any single, single factor. And that's something that's really hard for a lot of people, uh, because we're looking for that one thing that's going to solve the problem. Um, and so in terms of the psychology side, making sure that we're doing, doing things in the short term that support that long-term development. And for me, I, 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 I link a lot of things back to, you know, 
growth versus fixed mentality and uh, thinking about things with the, you know, how are we building skills? How are we building towards that long-term sustainability versus trying to jump to the conclusion? And for the listener, I'm going to circle back and ask Clint about the UFC Performance Institute in a minute because I think that's uh, it's really cool and I just want to hear about it. I don't know about you, but I want to hear about it. But um, but what you're saying right now, Clint, is fascinating. So let's stick with that line of, line of discussion because we hear about all these diets out there, right? South Beach diet, Beach Body, Paleo, Keto, Vegan, Intermittent Fasting, on and on and on. And mm-hmm. I imagine there's some truth in some of those, but also some fallacies. I mean, what's, I mean, can you help us sort that out a little bit? Absolutely. Step one, in terms of identifying what, you know, I'm using air quotes, quote unquote, diet is going to work for you, is identifying what, what outcome are you looking for? What are you training for? And if and, you're and trying let's to put it in well, perspective of, of the listener, the average listener is is out in the real world they're not they're not competing maybe you know maybe they were an athlete at some point in their lives and now they're out in the real world they're working every day maybe they have a family and they're trying to be the best version of themselves they're trying to you know be focused while they're at work they want to be fit uh they want to eat right they want to the role model that that for their for their kids and you know maybe they you just you know, yeah you just they want to be healthy and strong me yeah okay that's that's exactly what I do. I trying to be well, eat well, to uh, to to have a, a consistent uh, energy focus yep. and just output. Yep. Um, the key is understanding that jumping on a on a bandwagon for a diet that you can do for a week or a month and lose X number of pounds is setting you up for failure if you can't do it for years if you can't do it into perpetuity. Yeah. That's that's my critical focus is identify what are you trying to accomplish. So if those things that you just described are the purpose with which you're you're fueling yourself, well then we want to do something that is, is sustainable to have those outcomes so that we can have energy when we when we get home from work to play with the kids. So we can have mental focus at three PM so that we can have a productive work day. Um those those are the critical pieces. When we undermine those outcomes by trying to go on a biggest loser diet or try to shred or cut or do whatever for a, a short-term gain around body composition or w- whatever other motivating factor we might be kind of using, those tend to undermine those long-term or more sustainable outcomes. So for me, focusing on consistency and something that you can do day to day is really, really critical. I hear a lot about cheat days and cheat diets and things like that. And those are oftentimes, they're almost exclusively a result of having a restrictive mindset where we're undernourishing and underfueling our body and our brain. And that requires the cheat mindset versus if we do something that's consistent from day to day, we can include flexibility. And that flexibility allows us to have things that are imperfect sometimes versus having cheat days and, and going off the rails. Right. The men, kind of the, the philosophy of 80-20 I use with my athletes. 80% of the time you're eating for performance. 20% of the time you're having some flexibility and choosing suboptimal, sub, you know, imperfect options. But that applies for athletes. That applies to, to lay people like myself, kind of a former athlete, where I'm still fueling for performance. My performance might be different than when I was going and shaking hands and doing battle. Right. So fueling for performance, 
in the real world. Love that sort of concept. How, you know, what should we be eating? I mean, is there, well, let me kind of, that's a huge question, a broad question. Um, let's start with like carbs. Like, well, are so, carbs so let me, evil? Let me, let, let, me, let me address your first question. What okay. should we be eating is such a loaded question because that, in, that in, infers that we should be eating some things and we shouldn't be eating others. And I, I kind of take, I, I take a, a step back from that and, and we need to understand we, we can eat anything and nothing is off limits per se, but we do better from my Good, experience. Good, because I love from donuts. And, and from, perfect. <laughs> you, it's not that you should not eat them. You can eat them. You just need to understand how it affects those long-term goals. It's sure. not that you should or you yeah, shouldn't. Yeah, just how it fits in. Try, right. to, try to move into more of a could versus a should mindset. And that helps to, to kind of decriminalize our foods. Because if it's off limits, then you're going to overeat it when you do have access to it. That's something on the psychological side that I find to be really, really important. Hey, I can have a donut. I could have a cookie. I could have whatever. I could have, you know, a cheeseburger. But if I have a high degree of judgment around it, then that becomes more of a, you know, compulsive eating food that then I eat when I'm sad or tired or just, you know, stressed or whatever it might be. And yeah. So and there's the psychology by, of food. It's kind of another angle of the psychology of food. So by changing to more of a couldn't mindset that, that helps to decriminalize and destigmatize a lot of our foods. So what could we be doing to provide better energy more consistently throughout the day for our body and our brain? We can eat early. We can eat often. We can eat in a way that stabilizes our blood sugar. So we're not kind of chasing that blood sugar curve. So, Eating early means we're eating within about 30 minutes of waking up. We're having protein every time we eat. That's going to support our tissue repair, keep our muscles healthy and resilient. And we're going to balance our, our nutrients, our macronutrients, to support the activity level that we're displaying at that moment in time. So those, those are critical things that we can do to help support stable energy, stable um, energy systems, and uh, kind of a healthy uh, healthy body system. Do things like the ketogenic diet, do they, do they work? Are they legit? Are they healthy? I mean, what's your take on that? For example, great question. Most diets. Well, so I, my general rule of thumb is if, if a diet has a name, you probably want to stay away from it because it's <laughs> not going to be something that is sustainable. That said, Mediterranean diet is more kind of a description of eating patterns rather than a specific diet. So that, that's, that's okay. kind of how. But all of those diets, whether it's keto, paleo, intermittent fasting, you can name, you can name a thousand of them. They all work in a vacuum, right? If you create a caloric deficit and you cut out certain nutrients, they're going to lead to weight loss, potentially better focus. And part of it is, you know, the caloric deficit. Part of it is just cleaning up the nutritional quality that you're having. But a lot of it is just creating that deficiency that drives weight loss. The problem is having ketogenic diet while trying to raise kids or while having to socialize for work or around holidays is a recipe for disaster. And and I, I say keto, but it could be any diet is a recipe for disaster because it's not sustainable for most people into perpetuity. And because of that, it creates the whiplash effect to the body where it's a restrictive period 
And once that ends, then it's a, it's a period of surplus. And the best way to gain weight and to get fat is to go on a diet. And research shows time and time again, dieting doesn't work. And what it does do is it helps people to get fatter. So the best long-term solution is to fuel your body and your brain to be well now to do work and your body will adapt positively to that. So if we want to, you know, kind of be like, like yourself, um, you know, you want to be alert and focused, be able to stay locked in while you're at work and be present while you're at home with your family after work. I mean, what, what's like a, what, what's the composition of your diet? Like, like what, what are you eating in the mornings, afternoons, evenings? So the, the biggest priority for me is, well, there's a few. So priority number one, eating every two or three hours. Um, you know, I'd say two to four hours on average, about three hours. So that, that generally looks like a breakfast, a snack, a lunch, a snack, a dinner, and sometimes a snack before bed, depending on when I'm going to bed and what my body's telling me. What's also important is to listen to those hunger cues, right? And sometimes when people are so dysregulated, the hunger cues are, are dysregulated. And, and then you need to spend a little period of time of, of recalibration, just kind of feeding the body and the brain at, at the times that we know that, that it best uh, optimizes to. And so that, that can be a little bit challenging for some people. But if you're fueling in a consistent way, your body will adapt. So breakfast is generally making sure that we get some protein and a good dose of protein is going to be around four to six ounces of protein, generally speaking. Like what would that, what were some examples of what four to six ounces of protein would be? Yeah. So an egg is going to be about an ounce, ounce and a half, depending on the size. And then, you know, some cheese or some, some other protein source, whether it's dairy or, um, or, uh, meat or something that you would have with it. Um, have some, uh, make, make sure that I have some complex carbohydrates with that to, to get some good stable energy for the day, as well as uh, fiber from fruit or vegetable and, uh, and some fat. Fat is a, is a macronutrient that I am very cognizant to include every time I eat as well, because uh, that does a good job of stabilizing blood sugar from any carbohydrates that you eat. So again, we want to destigmatize all of our macronutrients, just like we want to destigmatize our, our food choices uh, so that we can include sources that are going to help provide stable energy that, that makes any feeding pattern much more uh, sustainable. So breakfast will be really a balanced plate. And as the day goes on, and as I tend to be less active, I do tend to decrease the carbohydrate content at, at each meal. Um, so dinner will be my lowest carbohydrate content, whereas fat may be increasing through the day as a replacement as a, for an energy source that my body can use when my body is less active. Okay. So, uh, carbs there, you know, there's this yep. sort of war on carbs. Is that, uh, I mean, again, everything in moderation, um, you know, fewer carbs, or so, I guess you say fewer carbs in the afternoon. Yeah. yeah. So it's important to not cut out completely any, any major source of nutrients in our diet. So carbs are, are a part of that. I would caution away from kind of trying to, to think about things in moderation because that's, that's too abstract for me. I, I like to think about things in balance, right? I can't just cut something out without replacing it. I need to ba- rebalance things. So carbohydrates are really, we've evolved to use carbs when 
as a primary fuel source when we're exercising, especially when we're exercising at a higher intensity. So carbohydrates around both before and after a work se- a workout session is really vital to providing the nutrients that you're going to be using and then repairing with over that period. So carbohydrate content of a diet should be higher, will, is best served to be higher around your higher intensity workout sessions. So that's, that's kind of step one. Also, just around your general activity of the day and, and your, your, uh, your needs are improved if you're more active, if, if you're having more carbohydrates. When you're exercising at low intensities or if you're more restful, I recommend including more fats as a primary fuel source for those periods of the day. So that would be, for me, my last meal of the day, my dinner is going to be higher fat. And I'll decrease the, the carbohydrates, not to nothing, but to maybe a, a serving or, or you know more of a side dish rather than a, a big bowl of pasta. So what might you eat for, like what would be a, an example, a sample dinner with its relatively higher fat and lower carb? Yeah, so I, I might do uh, uh, like stir-fried vegetables with a, a high-fat sauce, it would be, you know, oil or, uh, you know, like a hum- hummus or uh, pesto with, uh, you know, salad or vegetables with um, uh, a side of carbohydrates, whether it's kind of rice mixed into the uh, into the salad or uh, just a small serving of my kids' uh, macaroni or something like that where it's, it's the staple is going to be your, your protein, your vegetables with kind of a, a fat base there, and then include you know maybe a, a quarter cup or a half cup of, of starchy carbs. That's going to be um, uh, a lower portion than I would have had uh, during the day. What would you eat for, like what would be some example snacks you would eat between meals, Clint? Yep, so snacks, again, every single time we eat, we want to load the body with a protein dose. That's going to help stimulate anabolic uh, processes within our body, and that's going to keep our, our, our muscles essentially re, you know, rebuilding and nourished. Uh, the, the complementary macronutrient that I would include would depend on my activity level. So um, mid-afternoon, when I'm struggling, you know, when many people are struggling with energy, I would advise against you know, providing a big dose of sugar because that's just going to kind of perpetuate the, the up and down of, of blood sugar. So instead, when you're, when you're sitting at your desk and you're needing a snack, that's where you do some protein and fat. So nuts, trail mix, vegetables with hummus, um, you know, yogurt, full fat, or, um, you know, something along those lines uh, uh, could, could, could all be really, really viable. Um, any of our full fat dairies, so you know, cheese and uh, cheese and vegetables, or uh, something along those lines, could be a really good snack as well. And for years, you know, I know when I was growing up, you know, I'm 42 now. So when I was a kid and in in high school and college, everything was low fat, low fat, low fat. Don't eat fat. Don't eat fat. If you want to lose fat, don't eat fat. Is that is that a fallacy? 100. Uh, percent Eating fat has no bearing on being fat. Wow. Be, you know, creating fat in our cells in adipose tissue is a function of, of a number of things. One is energy balance. Two is, uh, is, is blood sugar regulation. When insulin is spiked from uh, a spike in blood sugar, that stimulates a growth, a, a deposit of blood sugar into our fat, 
our adipose tissue in the form of fat. So it's much more about blood sugar regulation and energy balance than it is about uh, your, your fat consumption. That said, having carbohydrates at times when you need them and balance across the day is really, really vital, um, just like we talked about. One thing that I didn't share with, um, with carbohydrates as well, and this is something that I uh, experienced extensively in my work in eating disorder treatment, is uh, neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine are obviously vital for our brain chemistry as well as for our digestive system. Serotonin has receptors in our digestive system that uh, that help to stimulate digestion and, and you know hunger cues and things like that. But neurotransmitters, serotonin and dopamine specifically, cannot be produced without carbohydrate substrate. Carbohydrate wow. is used to build those neurotransmitters. So when athletes or wow. individuals are chronically low carb, oftentimes the side effect are signals of mental health distress, depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsiveness. And in the eating disorder world, if somebody's predisposed to, uh, to, to cope with these kind of dysregulations with food, then that precipitates in some pretty severe eating disorder symptoms. For those that have other predispositions, and maybe it's um, substance abuse or other mental health uh, outlets, then they get you know, oftentimes push down those roads. So making sure that consistency around energy, but also carbohydrate substrate is, is pretty vital. And for athletes, whether you're a weekend warrior or you're a you know, competitive athlete, carbohydrate substrate is the first thing that gets burned when you exercise. And so if you're chronically insufficient with carbs and then you burn them up, then you have nothing left for your, your, your neurobiology. And so that can be a, a really important side effect of, you know, dieting and, and chronic uh, depletion. So how do you explain, Clint, you know, the, I, I've never done the ketogenic diet, but you hear people talk about keto from Tim Ferriss to, you know, uh, people I've had on, on this show. Um, and, and they talk about this, this clarity that they've had, that they have uh, in terms of like mental clarity when they're on the ketogenic diet. And I've had, you know, friends and people that I know that have, they've raved yeah. about it. Like they've, you know, gone keto for a temporary amount of time, you know, temporary time, weeks or months, yep. and they feel clarity and they feel good and healthy and all that. I mean, what's your take on that? Why is that happening? And what's your sort of view on that? Yeah. yeah. So I, I alluded to the fact that any of these diets can be successful in a vacuum. And keto, I think, is a great example is if, if you have the time and energy or resources to have ketogenic food available at all times and to and to have the insider education or ability to to investigate what foods work for you because you can't you know it's it's near impossible to go out to eat like that then that that can be a really effective way you know there's really no better way to balance blood sugar than to be ketogenic because you have no blood sugar spikes little to no uh. blood sugar spikes and your body becomes dependent on endogenous ketone bodies which is essentially your your body's uh, byproduct of breaking down body fat for energy. And that is a really stable, long-term energy source. The problem is with keto is once you start requiring, well, first of all, the social and environmental issues that I've alluded to. But secondly, as soon as you put any sort of metabolic stress on the body from 
physical activity from training for, for any sort of a, a competition where you require some sort of an intensity or something along the lines of illness or, or stress or, or something that puts some metabolic strain, then it becomes problematic for a lot of people because you create these deficiencies that then cause, you know, kind of a cascade effect where the body can't keep up with it. Wow. So in, in a vacuum, I, I can't comment that it, I can't say that it's a bad op- option similarly to intermittent fasting. But for athletes that I've worked with both at the collegiate level where they're student athletes and they got to use their brain for the majority of the day rather than just their body. And then my professional athletes now where they have training demand stack up and they'll have, you know, 12 to 15 workout sessions a week. And these require recovery every single time. Those types of diets that have some sort of a restrictive component where you're eliminating big parts of the diet, those just become inherently unsustainable and counter to the adaptations that we're trying to solicit. It's interesting. So, I mean, you basically, what you're saying to us is pretty similar to what you're saying to your athletes, it sounds like, right? Absolutely. And it, it comes down to what outcome are you looking for? What adaptation are we trying to elicit? And then what do we need to do to elicit that in a consistent way that we can repeat over time? Yeah. That's, that's really what we're trying to do here at the UFC Performance Institute is help our athletes to be more consistent and to do it for longer to extend their career. And that's really what I'm trying to do with my personal wellness is to do something that I could do more consistently and do it for a longer period of time. Yeah. So tell us about the UFC Performance Institute. Why, why did the UFC start it? Because so, it's not that old, right? It's only guess, a few years old? Yep. We, we opened last May, so about a year and a half, a little over a year and a half. Um, I was hired in April. And uh, I guess about four years ago now uh, it is kind of how the story goes that I've been uh, kind of told is the UFC was con- you know feeling that they, they made you know, a lot of really great business decisions, a lot of great contracts, TV contracts and otherwise, but kind of had a down year because a lot of the, a lot of the high profile fights. And I think the statistic was something like 11 out of 13 of their, you know, the biggest events of pay-per-views had a main or a co-main event fall off. Wow. And so they, they felt like they're controlling the things that they can control, but they, there were a number of things that were outside of the UFC's control. And so, Lorenzo Fertitta was uh, was still kind of in charge at the time. And uh, being the innovator that he is, he kind of conceptualized how do we influence the things that are currently outside of our scope of influence. And so the concept of the Performance Institute came came to be. They were also um, in the the early stages of developing a a global headquarters, which hadn't been uh, developed at the time. Uh, up until the Performance Institute was built and our, our big campus here, uh, UFC offices were spread over a number of kind of strip mall office buildings over on Sahara, uh, just off the strip. And uh, and so they built the concept of the Performance Institute to, into the heart of the new global campus. And truly, uh, it, it's it's a pivot for the com- for a company who's had a very contentious relationship with its athletes historically. This is a pivot to really prioritize athletes. Uh, to provide an athlete-centered model where we can support them to improve their likelihood of showing up to the fight, ready to fight at their, at their peak, to be able to do it more consistently and to do it longer into their career. 
obviously what's driving this is to get athletes to the fights and to have our, you know, have people to be able to make more money for themselves, for their family, for their community, and then for us to be able to reap those rewards as well as, as a company. Yeah, win-win. The Performance Institute is is essentially kind of, we obviously are, are a big part of the UFC uh, as a whole, as a company, but we are uh, a little bit disconnected in that we are working directly for the athletes. Um, it, you know, any data that we collect is really the athletes' data. If they want us to share with their coaches, with their team, with our executive staff, we we will do that. But it's theirs to make those decisions with. So it's it's really it's really amazing in that model. And we uh, we developed this team and this model from the ground up. So it's a it's truly uh, an integrated performance team model where I, I have on any given day and any given hour some of the most in-depth integrative communication, you know, high performance team integration that, that I can even imagine with our, we have four prongs of our performance model, which include performance, nutrition, strength and conditioning, physical therapy, like sports medicine, and then sports science. And each of our, each of our prongs of performance truly integrate in a way that I don't think exists in, in you know, anywhere in, in sport. And, uh, and we're, we're working to not only provide world-class care for our athletes, but to provide the evidence base to drive our practice within this really, really new sport that just last year celebrated its 25th anniversary wow. in, in November, actually. And really, as a you know, that was UFC 1, where it was just kind of a cockfight between different you know, combat disciplines. But really, only the, over the last like 10 to 15 years has it really become a true sport. So we're evidence-informed, but we're trying to build our evidence base by data collection, uh, building out our, our assessment capacity, and we'll, we'll be publishing uh, you know, a lot of our findings. We, we did put out a, a journal, which was wow. um, a, essentially a, a one-year review of, of what we found within the sport, but we'll be publishing more and, and providing the, the evidence base to drive our practice. And uh, we're actually... Kind of crazy to say, but in about four months, May 2019, we're opening the second UFC Performance Institute in Shanghai, wow. China. So we're we're just wrapping up all the hiring for that. Amazing staff there that will fold right into our staff here. It'll be one team. They'll be in, operationally independent in terms of day to day, but it, the philosophy and the data and everything will be uh, all a joint venture. And it's actually triple the size, and uh, and we'll have more of a talent development model than what we have here, which is talent optimization. Wow. Fascinating. Uh, I think a lot of people probably don't even know that the UFC had a performance institute. Certainly, it's not uh, you know on the radar of, of, of a lot of fans and, and those of us who watch. But I uh, uh, love the fact that you're out there, Clint. You know, I remember watching you wrestle at the NCAA championships, and now uh, doing what you're doing is just uh, incredible. Um, you're, you know, you're, you're one of the top recognized leaders in the world at what you do. So let let me ask you this, Clint, um, you know, you're, you're successful. Uh, we, we, from the outside looking in, we see your life and we go, wow, this guy, you know, he, you know, NCAA all American, uh, you know, went to a, 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 an Ivy league and now he's the head of the UFC performance Institute in terms of the uh, nutrition side what can you tell us about a time where you failed? Can you tell us about a time where you felt self doubt? You felt that that hopelessness that comes from failure, and how you move through that? Yeah, and and I love I love the model and the the 
focus uh, of your podcast and, and of a lot of the work that you're doing and putting out there. It's, it's great. Failure is, is it's not only part of success, it's, it's kind of the key ingredient, right? I remember sitting in my uh, freshman dorm with my college roommate my freshman year and talking about our goals in college. And I told him, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to be an All-American. He's like, All-American? Can't, can't, that can't be a goal. you got to be a national champion. You know what? You're right. And kind of, you know, through college and making transition, I realized, yeah, I could be a national champ. And through that process, suffered many, many setbacks. Um, you know, the the biggest thing that, that I experienced that sticks with me today because of my career choice and my career path is I was studying nutrition and, and really trying to apply this clinical nutrition and this medical nutrition, which is very biochemically driven, that I was learning in my classes at Cornell, um, nutritional sciences is a very uh, highly, it's very common pre-med route. So it's very, very medical and, and clinical and trying to apply that to myself as an athlete and, and really doing the best I could at the time, but not doing the best job that, you know, that, that I would recommend now and, and doing a lot of things and kind of the inverse of my recommendations these days. And, uh, my, I guess it was my, my third year in college. So my, I had a medical redshirt my true freshman year, so it would have been you know, essentially like a, a, a redshirt sophomore year. And uh, and really, I grew out of my weight class. I was wrestling 165, um, cutting down from like 185, which for college wrestling rules is is uh, you know, kind of an extreme amount. With yeah, that's a lot. And 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 you know, kind of taking it personal because I'm I'm this nutrition student. This is my passion, and, and really struggling with weight. I, I never missed weight. I never got close to missing weight, but just did it in a way that was very depleting and largely not left with much choice just because I was, I was too big for the weight class at the time. And I was coming off a catastrophic knee injury. So I had a really good early season and I was ranked in the top 10 and each week that went by, I got you know, either banged up or hurt or something and ended up um, having kind of the most miserable outcome as the number one seed in our conference tournament and not qualifying for nationals. And largely it was driven because of the weight issues and my inability to, 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 to manage that in a, in a way that, that kept me healthy and kept me performing well. And that was, that was really tough for me. Um, and like I said, it's driven a lot of my professional development, professional growth, and obviously the, the, the humility around it in understanding that there's no, there's no shortcuts to nutrition. There's no one solution that any for for anybody and and we'd really need to personalize things based on people's you know genetic and you know genetic composition their history around nutrition and medical their their preferences and their environment and their psychology and that's something that that sticks with me to this day Um, i subsequently went up two weight classes i went from 165 up to 184 had you know pretty much all of my success in college up at, at 184 uh, was regarded by a lot of my competitors I've been told as one of the strongest guys in the weight which you know gives me a ton of pride having gone up two weight classes and you know being told that a couple time all-american I was on the national team but you know in terms of failures I, I consider my you know my wrestling career to be a great success in some ways but I, I never reached a single one of my dreams I, I was never a state champion in high school 
I was never a national champion, which very quickly in my college career became my, my goal after that little uh, pep talk from my roommate. And then I never was on the Olympic team or won, you know, won a world or Olympic title. So I, I think that that's partially a, a contribution of, you know, being able to adapt goals to, to more accurately push, push myself um, and, and, to, and to have these goals that are aspirational, but also the, you know, having, you know, getting pinned in the national semis my junior year by Josh Lambrecht uh, after taking him down twice, you know, that, that still yeah. sticks with me and, and drives the, uh, you know, the motivation, you know, in many ways to this day to, to make the biggest impact both, you know, on the wrestling community, on the sport and sport nutrition community, but also just on my community at large. Yeah. And I want to point out to the listener that, you know, the very thing that, that Clint struggled with and had self doubt around and, and wanted to take a lot of pride in was that, you know, being a nutrition student, he's struggling with his weight and with nutrition that became the very thing that he's now elite at, right? This is the thing that he's known for, you know, being good at this and helping others with this. Uh, so I just want to encourage the listener through the thing that you're struggling with right now or that failure or struggle that you've had in the past. Um, that is not a reason to, to doubt yourself necessarily. That could be the, the reason or, or the catalyst for, for future success. So Clint, thank you for sharing that. Um, I'd love to give my listeners an action item to walk away with, right? So if they say, okay, I want to uh, adjust my diet and, and you know, uh, look to, to maximize in my performance in the real world, what would be one action item, one thing they can do, let's say the next 24 to 48 hours to really maximize their nutrition for peak performance in the real world? Step one, make sure you're fueling your body and your brain every three hours with some protein. That's, that's step one to balancing out not only the, the nutrients that are going to support your efforts, but also help retrain, you know, any sort of digestion and, and appetite cues to support that, you know, the, the balancing of energy uh, for your body and your brain to be successful all day long. Excellent. Excellent. So for the listener, you're hearing from uh, one of the top you know, nutrition experts in the world. Um, so Clint, I can't, can't, uh, thank you enough for coming on. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and thank you for making time for this interview. It was great to be here. Thanks, Jim. And for the listener until next time, take the time to get clear on your goals and embrace failure as a stepping stone on your path to success. 